When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Good afternoon. I'm Cindy Adams, Madam Adams, from the Monday through Thursday columns in the New York Post. I feel like gossiping today. Hugh Jackman, he said, It's amazing how many Wolverine cultists there are. Before I did X-Men, I'd never heard of the character. But there's thousands of weird, scary movie fans who loved Wolvie. I'm in Canada one day in a supermarket, and this guy with an enormous Wolverine tattoo on his arm shoved my head in a grip and said he loved my Canadian accent in X-Men, and he'd always known Wolverine was Canadian. I said, I'm Australian. He then squeezed me harder. So quickly I said, I meant, I meant, I meant to say Canadian. He finally let me go. And then, says Hugh Jackman, I mean, forget hanging around for my groceries. I just ran like hell for the exit. Now, a Val Kilmer story. He just released a documentary he co-produced. Hollywood prose, mumble, it could win an award. It starts with his own ancient footage, which he himself shot. Val swings from age 26 in 1986's Top Gun to now being 61, unable to converse due to a tracheotomy. The contrast is tough. Back then, he was a pretty boy, but difficult. Now, without a voice. Few once upon a time, actors would allow themselves seen in this way. The changed appearance vulnerable, humiliated, but to continue making a living, he's reliving past glories. It will touch the movie colonies, many sidelined big names. One personal favorite Val Kilmer memory of mine. A sweltering summer years ago, he drove from Boston with a friend to visit me. My housekeeper was home. I had left for a previous appointment. Val Kilmer, undressed, picked a John and helped himself to a shower. Not your usual guest. Val was wearing shorts, T-shirts, and sandals. I was to join friends in an upscale restaurant for dinner. I said, honey, you can't come along dressed like that. Val Kilmer went out, spent thousands, bought himself a suit, shoes, socks, shirt, and tie, and joined us for dinner that night. Val Kilmer is and was a one of a kind. Okay, we pause now for a station break, and then I'm right back. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Kathleen Turner, she's got that famous voice. She's won Golden Globes. She's been nominated for Oscars and Tonys. She made that famous War with the Roses with Michael Douglas back in the Stone Age. She's made four movies with Michael and me. I love Kathleen Turner. We all know Kathleen Turner, but not 
not always your background. Where are you from, sweetie? Well, my dad was with the Foreign Service, a diplomat. So I think right after I was born, we went to Canada. And then after Canada came Cuba. After Cuba, Washington, D.C. for a, a bit. <laughs> and then Caracas, Venezuela. And then London. Uh, I went to high school in London. You mean how many, you, you changed places that many times when you were a kid? Well, for, in the Foreign Service, usually a ter, uh, um, two, two, two years. years, two or four years is usually the, the, the length of time. So how many languages do you speak? Well, uh, Spanish I'm bilingual, and I have some French and Italian. Juro romance. Juro fidelidad a la bandera de los Estados Unidos de América. Lo oí, lo oí día cuando decía. Es mucho gracias. Okay. Okay. So how did you get into show business in the first place after you've been schlepping around half the world? I always knew I was going to, actually. I mean, when I was uh, 12, I think I, I said to my parents I was going to be an actor. And they thought that was very cute, you know. <laughs> But uh, then yeah. as I got older and I had not changed my mind, they started to get rather concerned. And in high school in London, I was also auditing classes at, um, at Swiss Cottage at the, um, the Central School of, of Drama. And uh, so then they, then they got worried. And I was <laughs> performing... Uh, with my school and everything, and uh, my mother would come see me, but my father would stay in the car because he did not want to have any indication that he approved of this choice. I see, I see. How old were you when you were schlepping around doing this? Oh, uh, I guess I was, well, I was 17 when I, when he died, uh, a week before I turned 18 and graduated from high school. And so, with that, my world completely exploded. I ended up in Springfield, Missouri. My mother's parents lived there. And we used <laughs> to go back there. They had a farm for many years. And we would go back there on our, on our home leave, you know. But it was uh, not someplace I ever thought I'd live. Well, yeah, from Venezuela to Missouri is a big difference. Well, from London to Missouri is even bigger. <laughs> Do you remember your first show or tryout or audition or anything, the first days? Well, my, f my first show in New York City was, um, was uh, down at Soho Rep called Mr. T. Uh, who was it with John? Um, I'm trying to think. He's done Star Trek all the time now since then. Uh, he's very good. And he's uh, John Frakes. And he's a very good director also. So, yeah, down at Soho Rep, that was after about six months in New York, I got that. Weren't you scared? No, no, I, I don't get scared by the work. You know, that's like a relief. Oh, good, just let me do it, you know? I get scared uh, uh, with life choices sometimes, but not work choices. So am I supposed to ask you, what do you mean by life choices? Well... I suppose I'm not nearly as sure of my judgment or my um, my choices, I suppose, uh, in some areas of my life in, you know, I suppose some romance or some, oh, I don't know, some friendships maybe, although those have been quite solid with my lady friends, you know, with women. You have a lot of friends. I know you have a lot of friends. I have wonderful women friends, yes. 
Now, I got to get to your famous gorgeous voice, which everybody always mentions. How did that develop as a kid? Did you always have that voice? I was always low. And when I was in high school, uh, I was in the choir uh, at church, you know, and they used to put me in with the boys. No, which I liked a lot. I liked a lot, man. You know, I didn't mind that at all because I really couldn't even sing alto very well. So, and then, of course, over the years, it does deepen for everyone. But I have to say that I, I do work it. I've always worked it, you know, to, to expand the resonance, to expand the timbre, as we say. Huh? What about if you, I'm not asking you if you get drunk or anything, but if does, <laughs> does drinking or anything, does something help? That voice, do you take oh, lessons? They call it's such it a, a great they voice. They call it a whiskey voice or something, right? Yeah. Which they used to say about Bacall. They used to yeah. say about... Oh, oh, you have a Bacall story. Oh, I, know. I do. Oh, tell, tell I me, do. tell me. Oh, I don't want to forget. Well, okay, well, uh, I met Ms. Bacall at a restaurant in New York after... Well, we, we were both going to plays. And, uh, and I went over to introduce myself because I like to meet people. And I'm not shy about that, you know, so I said, hello. Miss McCall, I, I'd like to, to, to meet you. My name is Kathleen Turner. And she went, oh, yeah. She said, you're the new me. <laughs> and I said, no, no, I'm sorry, but there is no one but you. And I guess she kind of liked that because thereafter, whenever we met, we'd have like this little game where I'd, I'd say, good evening, Miss McCall. And she'd say, good evening, Miss Turner. And I'd say, how are you tonight? And she'd say, very well, thank you. <laughs> so it was kind of a how low can you go? Anybody else got such a voice like this today? Nobody. Right now? I don't know. I certainly know there are some wonderful male voices that thrill me, you know, but um, I don't know a lot of women, no. In the early days, early on, you always played some sex pot. All of your varying parts were in action, as I recall. Am I not right? Well, <laughs> certainly the, the breakthrough role um, yeah, was body heat. Huh? And I think that we really pushed the boundaries of, of sexuality in film uh, with that. Yeah, I think with so. That, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. All but of your varying parts were my, working. Oh, yes. <laughs> but all of my choices in, in the work have been in contrast. I mean, if you, if you look at the body of, of film, for example, um, after the, the serious, you know, femme fatale of body heat, then I did The Man with Two Brains with Steve Martin, which was a complete ripoff of Femme Fatale. It was a complete spoof. And after that came Romancing, where I was an adventurist, but started out being incredibly insecure and a wallflower. And then I went to Ken Russell with his Crimes of Passion. Um, it really was, you know, each, each role, each choice is kind of a reaction to the one before. I don't want to do what I just did. I mean, now, in saying that, if you are an attractive woman or man, uh, of course you, have, you make use of that, yeah. But back then, when you were doing it, there wasn't as much sexuality on screen as there nope. is now. Wasn't that a little either exciting or shameful or nervous-making? 
Uh -huh. with, I mean, you were very much out there, all of your varying parts. Well, that is true. <laughs> um, that is true. Oh, heck. I, I, you know, when we were shooting Body Heat, there was one scene that was complete nudity in the, in the uh, boathouse, huh? And I can remember that, that Larry Kazan decided we were going to start with that just to get rid of any inhibitions and make everybody just go, okay. And I'm going, you want, you're going to start with what? <laughs> anyway, Bill and I had a couple glasses of wine before we did that. I'm sure, yeah. So how, can I ask now, how did you do it? Did they put makeup all over on your body? How does no, that work? No, no, no. I, I did that for the graduate. I used body, you know, just a tanning sort of uh, thing. But no, I don't. I didn't use body makeup in the films. It's so choreographed, you know. It's so precise. You know, you're gonna roll to the right, and we're gonna see this. And they storyboard the whole thing. And of course, you have a minimum number of people that you can get away with on in the set itself. So you start to feel okay. You feel as protected as you can be. But it's. There's nothing, I mean, yeah, you're completely exposed, and it feels like that. I, I, would, I don't know what to ask. I think I would be so <laughs> nervous. I would be so nervous. Well, you see, the difference is if it's really called for, uh, if it's really inherent in the script. If it's gratuitous kind of, oh, let's just take a shirt off. No, I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. But, for example, with The Graduate, uh, Terry Johnson, who wrote and directed that, he said to me, look, if you can find anything else that has the impact of Mrs. Robinson standing there nude, you know, you can do it. And I thought, okay, a half slip, no bra, bra and panties. I tried to think of some other than complete nudity, but there really wasn't anything that would have that kind of impact on Benjamin but the nudity. Oh, my Lord. I mean, what did you do? Tweeze yourself? What did you do? Put on makeup? What did you do? Pee first? I mean, it's so... <laughs> I, I just can't imagine how, how, how I could be photographed in the nude. Well, as you, you know, it was 21 seconds or 22 seconds, <laughs> they said. Um, but that was quite long enough. <laughs> uh, and the worst thing was one night I got back, you know, I got back off stage and I... Uh, and my dresser was nowhere to be found. And I had to get dressed and get back on stage right away. And I was like, what the hell? I mean, yeah, that was bad. That was bad. Uh, he'd fallen asleep or something. I don't know. Fall asleep when you're doing um, a nude scene. That's yeah. nice. That's always refreshing. You're now in two projects. I mean, you're, you're everywhere, but you're in two projects right now. The White House Plumbers and the Kaminsky Method. So tell me first about the White House plumbers. Oh, it's crazy. It is crazy, Cindy. It's, um, it's with Woody Harrelson and Justin Theroux, and it is an almost factual account of the Nixon's re-election campaign. I mean, the stuff that these guys thought they could get away with is, is fantasy. It's in, absolutely insane. And, uh, and so my character is a woman named Dita Beard, who was the one exposed for bribing uh, Mitchell with $400,000 bribe and um, who started the whole, you know, chain of exposures. So where did you film? How did this happen? We were upstate, from, from my work, we were upstate New York in different kind of locations. And now in September, I go to D.C. to shoot this scene at the uh, airport. 
at the Reagan. Why yeah. was it upstate? What was there about this that was, that was upstate? Just the topography, the the, the grass, the t- trees, the, the uh, kind of... Well, and also, you know, when you're doing this kind of thing, obviously you want to put as much uh, filming in one area as you can without moving location all over the place. So there was a hospital up there that was pretty empty we used, and there was... Uh, an office that we could fill up with, uh, you know, with people. And and um, all of that was uh, within close distance to each other. Had you read all the stuff about the Nixon years before? I read a lot. But, see, I was in high school when all this happened. So I, I, I'd follow headlines, but I just thought, you know, just kick him out. You know, that's all. <laughs> so <laughs> it was... And I was in London, so... Um, I wasn't that wrapped up in it, no. Okay, now this Kaminsky method that everybody is talking about. Tell me about that. Well, it's nice. Um, Michael called me yesterday because uh, he's in England now. He's working on... Michael Douglas. Yes, sorry. Uh, He's working on the new uh, Ant-Man movie. They're doing another one. And... He sounded good. He sounded very good. He was just in Mallorca um, before, which I was shooting an independent little film in in um, in Canada in this awful little steel town outside of Toronto. <laughs> just absolutely awful, absolutely awful. And thinking, you know, what the hell is wrong with me? Anyway, and and he calls. And I said, Well, where are you? And he goes, Well, I'm in New York. I said, I'm in bloody, you know. <laughs> Life is not fair sometimes. Before we get to Michael Douglas, which we're going to get to Michael Douglas. So you two maintain this off-stage relationship. You call each other, you see, do you have dinner with him? Well, more often lunch, because if he comes into the city, um, a lot of times it's for, or it was for matinee or something. So we'd have lunch and stuff because he'd, he'd like to be home by... You know, by the evening. Um, but I'll probably, he told me I should have to come up and see his place. He's in the Hudson Valley there, which I look forward to because I'll bet it's nice. Well, it's better than this crappy town that you're just telling me in Canada. Oh, God, that was desperate. <laughs> How long were you up there? Too long. But it started with two weeks of complete quarantine because Canada was really locked down. And so I was informed. Uh, I was taken to this Airbnb that they had rented for me, and I was informed I could not leave the premises, not even for a walk. I could not have anyone else into the premises. You know, groceries had to be left on the sidewalk outside so that we could... It was... I didn't see anybody for two weeks. (laughs) It was bad. I understand. I feel for you. I couldn't yeah. care less, but I feel for you. Listen, you have done mm-hmm. stage. You have done films. You have done TV. You have done personal appearances. You have done nightclubs. A stupid question, but everybody would want to know. What's the favorite? Oh, stage. Stage. Why? Why? On. Why? Because there is there's really nothing like um, having an audience, you know, there with you um, and. You can feel them. You can, I mean, when you're on a night when it's really, when the whole cast is is working together beautifully and the, and the script, you know, supports it, then people start to breathe together at the same time. They hold their breath at the same time. They laugh at the same time. It's, the feeling is extraordinary. 
Did you ever blow a line on stage? Of course. Well, what do of you course. do? How does I it was, work? Oh, Lordy, I was doing this one-woman show on Tulula Bankhead, yeah? Oh. I think I was down in Florida in Palm Beach or something. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, it's a monologue. It's a 75, 80-minute monologue. And I went completely up. And I looked at the audience and I said, I have no idea where I am. <laughs> Give me a second. And I looked off to the stage manager and I said, hint. And he said, you're in London. Ah, okay. Now, you know, and then I could pick up the line and go on. I got to tell you, I got to break in and tell you a story that I had with Sir Lula Bankhead. I was like 17. I was in the ladies' room with the Waldorf. I'd never met a celebrity before. I was very excited. In the next stall, Sir Lula Bankhead. And she knocks on the wall and she says, little girl in there, do you have any paper? And I said, well, well, no. And I was so scared. I said, no, no, Miss Miss Bankhead, no paper. So she's, then there's silence, then another knock. Do you have any Kleenex? I said, no, 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 Miss Bankhead. Then you hear the sound of a purse opening and closing. And she says, do you have change? Two fives for a ten. <laughs> My one Tallulah Bankhead story. Okay. What specific form of work? would you like to be doing now? I know I've seen you in clubs and everything. Yeah, yeah, I've been working, I've worked up at Cabaret. Then I'm going to start up again uh, this fall. Um, that I, I, I enjoy tremendously doing. Uh, it's, it's stories of my life and, and, and from the work. And then with, with songs that kind of, I think of them as sort of close-ups or, you know, accents to the stories that I'm telling. And I realized that now I've got to write uh, a fur. I've got to to write in this past year that wasn't, you know. Yeah. And and then I was thinking, I wonder. I need a song. I need a song to 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 close that up. And um, of course, you know, Michel Legrand, uh, "You Must Believe in Spring," which is just gorgeous. You know, um, let's see. When lonely feelings chill the meadows of your mind, just think when winter comes, can't spring be far behind. The secret of a rose is merely that it knows. You must believe in spring. And I feel like that's, that's where we are now. Okay. We're coming into spring. Oh, Oh, honey, listen, to go with the song, can you remember one of the anecdotes that you tell on stage? Oh, sure. Well, tell, tell, tell. Okay. Tell. There's, um, there's a story I tell about, it, I call it my sort of acting pack, that it starts out when you're so excited. You know, you're starting out and, and you're grabbing at every... That job that comes your way and you're just, it's just thrilling. And that, that's, that song is, um, uh, da, 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 da. You ha oh gosh, I'm, I'm going up here. Okay. Um, believe, uh, it's, um, well, all right, I'll come back. And then I have, and then you hit the road, you know, and you're, you're doing these marvelous, shows and and touring and and that's any place i hang my hat is home 
and then you you start to get weary and start to count <laughs> the cost of all this time away from home, whether it's a long location, you know, a film or or a tour. And there's a wonderful song that suits, uh, I think it must have been written for actors, uh, called Sweet Kentucky Ham, about, you know, being on the road. And, and then there's Coming Home. And Well, you have now come home, and um, I am so thrilled that you came to talk to me, Kathleen Turner. Well, thank you. I love you, and the audience loves you, and thank you for coming. Pleasure. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Hey, it's me again, Cindy Adams, columnist from the New York Post who appreciates a colleague. New York Magazine is a Bible for who we live in the city, state, place, which just happens to be the capital of the whole world. And at its top, the Statue of Liberty for Our Town's magazine is its good-looking editor-in-chief, David Haskell. First, History David, when did the magazine start? Hi, Cindy. The magazine started in 1968, and uh, it started in this like really small, startup, hotbox little room of uh, you know maybe 18 people. And uh, and then has just kept growing and growing from there. Eighteen people. How many people you got now? Two hundred and seven. <laughs> and it's not a little hot box in a closet. No, but I keep trying to to remember that energy. Like, yes, two hundred and seven is, is a lot of people, and we work on making a print magazine, and we make a big website, and the website has all different things that happen, and we have podcasts and all that stuff. But I'm still trying to make it feel like a artist commune, like a little project that we're all really intensely involved in because it's it's a kind of it's a special and more bespoke project than a lot of other media a lot of other magazines okay so who are you where did you come from how did this happen to you (laughs) well (laughs) i uh grew up half in new york and half in connecticut and i um came to journalism a little bit late in my life uh i was Thinking I wanted to be a work in urban politics, New York City politics, New York City urban planning, New York City uh, yeah, architecture. Right, yeah, okay. And at some point, I um, got hooked on magazines. And I went in for graduate school. I, I moved to Cambridge University, and I started a small magazine there with a few friends from that grad program. And... We didn't really know what we were doing, and, and none of us had been magazine makers before. Really, I, in retrospect, we were making just kind of a journal with chapters, and we hadn't really realized what you can do with the form of a magazine. But I loved it, and I, you know, long story short, I grew up in New York until I was 10, and then my parents moved me to Connecticut, and I always missed the city. And we would come in on the weekends, see shows. I had piano lessons that I Oh, kept you going. lived a very high-class life. Yeah, I lived a really nice life. I did. I had, I had parents who were hippies and then yuppies and... Um, then richies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, when, I, when I graduated from college, I sort of imagined I'd be moving to New York, but I instead went to a graduate program in Cambridge in England. And it was there that I started a magazine, even though I didn't think I was going to be doing that. And it was there 
that I sort of realized how much I missed the city. And, and that's, I came back to run the magazine that I had started. But what would you know about doing a magazine in London? Well, it's not, no, nothing, really. <laughs> we had this thought, this was a bunch of grad students. Um, we, we all just wanted to make a place where we could be publishing um, stories about the way life works that were curated in an interesting way. And when I say that, that sounds so vague, just like hopelessly could be anything. And what we learned as we, it was called Topic Magazine, and each issue was a different topic, and one would be about war. And you war. sold 30 copies, right? Yeah, yeah, we sold like 3,000 <laughs> copies. But, they, but the, each copy paid, each issue paid for the printing of the next issue, and we were all volunteers, and we were working on it. And together over years, I think we taught ourselves the, the sort of skill of making a magazine. Okay, so how do we jump from there? where you're doing some sort of a cockamamie magazine in England, how do we get from there to the Bible, to New York Magazine, and you becoming the editor? You're 11 years old. How did you get to be the editor of New York Magazine? Uh, well, there's not that many plot points. You know, in 2003, <laughs> I decided to move to New York with that magazine, with Topic Magazine. I thought if that has a chance of, of long-term success... It should be edited in New York City. And, and when I was here, I was uh, with it. I was waiting tables and doing a lot of other uh, freelance work as I, uh, you know, built this crew of volunteer editors and, and edited that magazine. One of the things I did while I was here is meet editors further along in their career and showed them this magazine and said, what do you think? Could you give me some advice? And one of the people I met... His name was Adam Moss, and at the time, he was the editor-in-chief of the yeah, Times Magazine, yeah, yeah, but yeah, then yeah. he later moved to New York Magazine, and he's the one who saw an opportunity for me to come into that magazine, to New York, and that was 2007, late 2007, and right before the economy was about to crash, and he took a risk on me in a way that I don't think he would have been able to just months later, so I kind of slipped in there as an editor with some experience, but not really the obvious experience. I never worked at a proper magazine, just been trying to run my own thing. And then I just stayed there for a long time. And, you know, 12 or so years later, I became the editor-in-chief. How does the magazine, New York Magazine, dredge up its ideas? There's so much going on in New York, and it's so changeable. How do you schlep out an idea? That, that thing, the idea machine, is the most important uh, project. Because, so we make a magazine that comes out bi-weekly. It used to be a weekly magazine, now we come out tw twice a month, right? But we also run a, a website that publishes something close to 100 pieces a day. So we are a major news engine on the website, and then we are this magazine that we're very proud of publishing twice a month. And they need so many ideas for them to function. And so we have just a ton of meetings scheduled throughout the week where people have to bring ideas to the table. And you have to process a, a lot of mediocre ideas or half-baked ideas or wouldn't that be nice to do but how, how are we going to do them ideas to be able to get to the handful that you think have a shot at starting and then that's just the beginning of the process then you have to find the writer who can make it happen you have to convince the subject to participate you have to work through it all and so we're just constantly pushing ideas from from you know the very beginning germs all the way to the final product. So that means actually you're sitting in a room full of smart asses who all of whom a bit want to show off too. Yeah, and, and except for this past year when we're doing it over Zoom, but yes. Yeah. Okay. So how many people sit in this? Well, they, the 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 
key meeting of the week is the Tuesday 11 a.m. ideas meeting. And there are usually about 16 people who come to that meeting. And about two-thirds of them are always expected to attend. And then we rotate through a handful of other editors who work at the magazine and writers who work at the magazine um, because we want to make sure that anyone who wants to attend a meeting, that meeting, can come occasionally and see how it works and get their uh, ideas directly to me and um, learn the experience of pitching. Because pitching an idea is, uh, pitching a story is different than saying, oh, I have an interesting idea. You, what you're there in that meeting to do is pitch a story. And that is a point of view about a story that you want to tell. It's not just a subject. And that's the, that's the hardest thing in the world. It's like, you know, you could, you could talk right now about how it's 93 degrees out and we should do something on air conditioning and climate change. Okay, but what? What is the like, story that you want to read? It's so how do you determine a smart ass from a smart aleck? How do you do that? They all want to get your attention. How do you do that? Well, the way that we structure it now is that you have to send your ideas in ahead of time over email. So then I spend the hour of oh, the meeting interrogating see, you. So you will have pitched me this air conditioning idea and I will just say, but Cindy, do you want to read a profile of an air conditioner guy? <laughs> do you want to read a screed about how air conditioning is terrible for the planet? Do you want to like, what is the reading experience you want? And then, and then it's like thinking in real time and, and an idea, if an idea is kind of flat, it's not going to be able to survive that little pitter patter back and forth conversation. The idea needs to get more interesting as we press on it and not sort of deflate. You told me something on the phone the other day. You told me that you actually did a story about refrigerators and you could tell from the refrigerator, the contents, what sort of a person. I once had an experience with the Gabors a long time ago, Jaja and Jolie and all the rest. And I stayed with Jolie and she gave me a room and it had a refrigerator which only had champagne in it and, and orchids, no food. So how what Fantastic. would you tell from that? Well, that that tells she's you she's a cheapo, yeah. <laughs> or, and she's got style, and she's got a strange circumstance that uh, has led her to that place, and she's able to make decisions that most of the world aren't able to make. And she's a weirdo, you know. Like there's a <laughs> lot. Like I I love people. I love that this magazine is built around telling the stories of people. But I. One of the things that's really exciting for us is to find the right form to tell you about a person. And I have to say, you were in our pages not that long ago, and it was not a traditional long interview with you, although we've done that before, and it's not necessarily a long written-through piece. What we did is we published beautiful pictures of your extraordinary and quite individual <laughs> apartment. And uh, that use of an interior design story, to me, is really interesting. I don't want to publish, when we publish interior design images, I'm not really interested in the technique. I'm interested in how rooms tell the story of people and reveal character. And if anyone listening hasn't seen this, I recommend you Google to, uh, to find our recent, from maybe two years ago, uh, uh, article about you. It's it's just, it's fantastic. And the pictures are amazing. Okay. So you can tell from the interior of what, what you're photographing, what the person is like. Sure. I mean, if I remember correctly, you turned a bathroom in your apartment into your office and you've plastered the walls <laughs> with covers of the New York post. 
yes. of your scoops and stories. Not just the bathroom, but one one entire room, 500 front pages that I had, smart ass. So don't knock there, it. I mean, there you go. Good. Yeah. There you go. That's okay. pretty great. So do you ever get screwed that something that you've done turns out wrong or or they're mad at you? Did you ever uh, yeah. have an experience? Yeah. I mean, you, we, we, we try to have... Uh, provocative, independent journalism. And often that means that the people that we write about aren't that happy with what we wrote. <laughs> and yes. so you just, you know, I think that it's really important in a situation like that to get on the phone and hear what they have to say and walk through why we made our decisions. Like it's useful to talk it out, but at a certain point you can't, what can you do? You know, I, I am uh, all the time, just a, just a couple issues ago, we were in a situation where we published a cover story about Rachel Lindsay, who was a participant on The Bachelor and then the first Bachelorette of color. And she wrote a kind of tell-all for us about the um, experience of, of The Bachelor. And she was really proud of the piece and really unhappy with the cover line that we chose. And, you know, that was an interesting situation. What we chose was... Oops, I blew up The Bachelor. And the picture was so great. It had so much attitude. And the piece that she wrote, as serious as it was, also had so much style to it and so much verve. And I thought a, a headline like that, a cover line, would just be like, I really, I love that cover line. I think it's great. The cover looks great. But she didn't like it. And she let the whole world know. And in that sense, because she was a real collaborator with us and, and um, made the piece with us, I, you know, I feel bad about it. And that's just... You look what, like you what, overcame what, it, honey. What can so, you do? You know <laughs> how how much in advance you plan um, uh, an issue? We're just constantly juggling time periods. I have an issue in my head in December that I know that I want to do, and we're going to spend the next five months making it. And then I don't know what the cover of the next issue is going to be in two weeks, and I'm scrambling. And that's fun because you don't want to have everything programmed out right away. You want to ha be able to take your time and let let issues bake when they need to and stories. Sometimes you're spending a year cultivating a source, getting somebody to sit down with you. And other times you just got to like, boom, respond to the news, have something important to say and move faster than our competitors. Because a lot of the magazine world is operating at a slower rhythm than we are. So we often have the competitive advantage of just being faster. Do they steal from you? Yeah, yeah. And we steal from each other all the time. Uh, we're in competition over ideas and over people, but also stealing from each other forms and 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 ways of ways of seeing the world but new york has become in some ways i mean i love it i'm 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 a religious new yorker that's my religion but prices are ridiculous crime garbage homeless traffic construction politics it's all impossible how can you decide what you want to do about new york you can't pee on everything in new york yeah and i don't think it's our our role to really be um Outraged, You know, I think that New York is a circus. It is the most extraordinary, high-pressured, um, like, you know, 50 square miles, if you take the metropolitan area, on Earth, right? And there's so much drama and tension yeah. and conflict yeah. and posturing and vanity and shame and anger. And all, all of that is like, you know, Tom Wolfe, who was one of the founders of New York Magazine, his whole project was seeing the operatic... And and somewhat amusing, um, you know, larger than life characters in the city and the tension between them all and the power and ambition and struggle. That's what we're covering. So I think, you know, as as 
devastating and difficult as the pandemic has been for for this city, it has also created an experience that none of us will forget for the rest of our lives. We just lived through such an enormous, volatile moment where the city, you know, I'm looking out the window right now and it's packed, you know, and like we've gotten through something, but we'll never be the same. And the city really emptied out and is coming back again. And that change will take, uh, you know, years for us to pull apart and dissect. And it'll be really fun, I think. There are people, when they go to the Hamptons, there's a huge pile of New York Post and there's a huge pile of your magazine. And if they don't read the New York Post and they don't read your magazine, they have nothing to talk about at a dinner party. That's exactly what they need. I mean, because it's full of dish. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested in dish and I'm interested in in big stories, which is to say big dish. You know, like I think when we, when I... The, the, the important places that I look to for stories, because we're stealing stories all the time, are the New York Times, which I read every morning, and the New York Post. And you get in those two... Why are we second? Well, they're... <laughs> Tell the story differently. <laughs> Tell it again. <laughs> well, okay. Well, here's why. Because what the Times gives you is what happened. Yeah. And what the t- Post gives you is a take. And it's interested in purience. It's interested in... Uh, and peeing on a lot of people in, in many yeah, cases. It, you know, and I, I don't, we don't, our magazine does not have the politics of the New York Post. We are not doing the same thing the New York Post is doing. But I appreciate it. I appreciate the tabloid perspective because it's got one. It's got, it's alive, you know. And what we're trying to do with the magazine is have a sense of life and a personality. And, and you should be able to like us sometimes and not like us other times. And if we're appealing to everyone, we're doing the wrong thing. Okay, what about dinner parties? Don't you get an awful lot of stuff from a, a, a big mouth who's talking at a dinner party and you got big ears listening? Yeah, definitely. I, my favorite thing about the Tuesday ideas meeting that I was talking about earlier is it's gotten, you've had enough time to digest the weekend dinner parties and, you know, and the, your experience in the weekend where you're hanging out with friends and you're not just with coworkers and you're hearing how you're how how life is being talked about and then you can sort of sit on that for a couple of days and see oh there's an idea in that it's the way people are talking about this change in you know schools policy that is interesting it's not that it's not that we need to go dead at the policy we need to go at how the policy is being felt how did the pandemic affect you me personally no why do i care uh. about you personally <laughs> about the magazine <laughs> well <laughs> the 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 magazine thrived i have to say the magazine itself i'm really proud of the work that we published it was um incredibly hard for all the obvious reasons we've never printed a, pr- a made a print magazine remotely before that that was just not possible and then suddenly it was and then we could do it again and then maybe we do this for a few more issues and now we're still doing it remotely it's like that's a crazy thing and it's not just technically difficult it's that all of the all of the the thing about being in person next to each other when that disappears and you're on Zoom grids, it's just a lot more work and energy um, required to create that sort of fizziness that makes the whole thing special. So that's been really difficult. Obviously, everyone's had a really just struggled inter like themselves personally and brought that to work in a way that's really difficult to manage through. But but I think that the the product that we made has actually been like, you know, it's it's like it's just got a ton of 
um, vitality during this period. We've got so much vitality that we're turning into Chicago. We're killing everybody else. <laughs> so when do you think we will come back? New York. Oh, I think the first thing to say is that New York is back. Already. Where? Where is it back? Let's How go, is it back? Let's go out to dinner tonight. I'll show you. I are think, you buying? Are you buying? Sure. And then you have my interest. <laughs> no. How is it coming back? I people mean, are still scared. Yes, people are scared, but 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 fear is an ingredient in urban life always. That That is just part of the... Uh, that's something that maybe we forgot over a period of, you know, the Bloombergian version of the city was sort of astonishingly um, placid. But, like, the city can be a very strong, robust, exciting place and still be a place where there is some crime. I'm not excusing it. That I'm just saying that that is, like, a reality that we're probably going back into. And, there you know, and one thing that, that I think is really interesting is if you track the kind of the return of restaurants. Like, so, so to work in a restaurant, to be a waiter in New York City is such a uh, iconic and still incredibly useful opportunity to be living anywhere else in the world and come here with your dream and start by being a waiter, right? And, and we lost that whole thing for about 15 months. And that was incredibly disruptive. And, and the city lost a lot of people who probably went back to where they came from. And what the city is doing right now as we speak is staffing up. And it's staffing up at that, at that like entry level, entry to New York City level, um, that is restocking a, like, uh, a whole generation of New Yorkers that will live here for decades and change the city permanently. And we are at the beginning of seeing that new class of New Yorkers, it's See, really exciting. See, the trouble with you is you're so boring. Talking to you, you're so boring. You never have anything to say. I'm really but, optimistic. <laughs> that is, and that's a problem. Get off it. me. It's enough with you already. <laughs> I was talking to David Haskell, the editor-in-chief of New York Magazine, and I love you madly. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Now, my goodbye is a quote from Jerry Seinfeld when he was asked about in making any new friends, he said, quote, whatever group you hang with is the group you have. At a certain age, you don't anymore need to accept new applications. Any person comes up and seems pleasant. The best to do is to say, hey, you seem really nice. But the thing is, we're simply not hiring anybody right now. Okay. And me, I'm simply saying goodbye until next Sunday at the same time, 1 p.m., WABC AM Radio. Bye. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.